Peter Stansky is a stalwart of the British Studies Seminar here at UT. I looked up the last time that it was he was spoke to the seminar, and it was in 1994. And today he's going to tell us about William Morris and the arts and crafts movement in Britain and America in the latter part of the 19th century and on into the uh, 20th. Uh, I'll say just a word about Peter himself. Uh, educational experience at Harvard as well as Yale and Cambridge and at Stanford where he has taught since 1968. 68. So this is a long... I was 11. I was 11 in His books include uh, already two books on William Morris, as well as studies of Bloomsbury, George Orwell, and British participants in the Spanish uh, Civil War, uh, and not least the arts in Britain during the Second World War, and he is about to publish a book on Leonard Wolf. So we're very pleased, uh, Peter, that you're going to speak with us this afternoon about the arts and crafts movement. Well, I'll stay here and use the podium, yeah. Uh, thank you very much, Roger, and thank you, Roger, for inviting me, and thanks to Holly and Francis for, for, for helping to facilitate uh, the visit. And, and, and thank you all uh, for coming. Uh, 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 of course, uh, one's talk changes shape uh, since I wrote in the description. And I won't be saying very much about the 20th century. And I won't be saying very much about um, William Morris in America. Uh, but but uh, perhaps in, 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 in the discussion, uh, we'll, we, we, on questions and comments, uh, we can, we can uh, deal, deal with the, 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 uh, that subject. You can come in. I think there's seats on the side. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here and have the opportunity to, to talk to you about William Morris on the occasion of the splendid exhibition downstairs in this very building. He is hardly an unknown figure, and I wasn't quite sure how I should approach him today. I thought it might be useful and might, and might to some extent illuminate the ex exhibition to talk about him in a somewhat general way. But I may owe an apology, as I may be telling you much that many of you know already. And I'm not particularly putting forward a, a new interpretation of, of, of William Morris. I also owe you an, another apology for not having illustrations for my talk. It seems rather perverse to give a talk about Morris uh, without illustrations. On the other hand, you have many of the objects easy to view right here. So I feel I have some f slight excuse not to show you representations of what you have, the pieces themselves, the real thing, not digitally. <laughs> there was some discussion earlier about digital humanities, which I think is great, but I, I don't think one should. And why is it that the real thing, the real manuscript, makes a difference? 
and 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 uh, digital humanities, which I think is a, basically a good thing. I was distressed. So I hope I won't digress too much, but. I think uh, Obama's made a terrible decision not to have the real manuscripts in, in his library in Chicago. Um, the exhibition, as you know, opened on the 200th anniversary of the birth of John Ruskin, on his birth on February 8, 1819. And it's also, of course, appropriate uh, that there's the strong tradition of Sherry at, at, at these events, uh, because the Ruskin family that's how they made their money. They, they were sherry. They owned vineyards and import, or, or imported sherry uh, to to, and that made them very rich. And that Ruskin could have the life that he led because of sherry. Uh, Ruskin was an artist himself, but not, I think, it's fair to say, a major one. Nor was art, nor was art as a pr practitioner his primary commitment. But rather, it was much of his voluminous, uh, it, it, it was in much of his voluminous writings to deal with the condition of England question, and much else besides, how the Industrial Revolution was creating such a world of ugliness, and how such a world should be corrected. Eventually, and Ruskin should be given much credit for this, the look of the world changed, although the deeper changes that he might have wished for either did not take place or to a far lesser degree than he might have hoped. But I think it is also accurate to say that in moving Ruskin's ideas forward, and particularly in changing the look of our world, which is the great theme of the exhibition, everyday life, that the world changed because of the, the look of the world changed because of the arts and crafts movement, William Morris was, I think, the single most important figure. He was a person of so many varied, uh, varied accomplishments. He also fits into the category of figures who have always intrigued me in my study of English history. The upper middle class person brought up and trained by a society that has provided the tools with which the individual operates and yet leading to efforts to radically change that society. In fact, in Morris's case, his wish was actually to destroy that society and replace it with a socialist world. He also shared that not uncommon trait among, uh, among English radicals to extol the past as a model for the future. In his case, he was inspired by what he saw, whether historically correct or not, as the comradeship and sense of equality in the medieval guilds that created a world ranging from smaller items to great cathedrals. Who was he? He was born on March 24th, this very month, in 1834, in Walthamstow, then a separate town in Essex before becoming part of Greater London in the 20th century. As his name suggests, his family was originally Welsh, and its story is a typical 19th century success story. His father, from modest, modest circumstances, was a very successful stockbroker, or bill exchange, I mean, but he was in the, the world of business and, and stocks and such. And he also acquired a considerable holding of stocks in a copper mine, which was the central part of the family's fortune. Although William Morris's father died young, 
he left his family very, very well off. And William, as the eldest son, might have been particularly favored. When he turned 21, he had an annual private income of 900 pounds, a considerable sum at the time. He appreciated the freedom, the golden island, as E.M. Forster called him, the freedom that his, this income gave him and allowed him to explore various career possibilities and not to actually earn any money himself until he was 25. As he wrote in 1883, if I had not been born rich or well-to-do, I should have found my position unendurable, should have been a mere rebel against what would have seemed a system of robbery and injustice. And Morris himself, contrary to what some thought, was himself a very good businessman, ran a profitable design firm, and then towards the end of his life, a small publishing house. In many ways, he was a very practical man and realized that it was necessary to earn money in the capitalist system in order to provide the funds that would allow him to work towards totally destroying and subverting the system that made his income possible. And it's a great, in a way a, a paradox of his life, but I, I think, in my view, a very attractive one. He had a very happy childhood. When he was six, the family moved to its grandest house, Woodford Hall, with 50 acres of park and 100 acres of farmland. He was a young romantic, saturating himself at a very young age in the novels of Walter Scott and writing about the nearby Epping Forest, frequently dressed in a toy suit of armor. In his early days, he was fairly religious, influenced by his mother and his favorite sister. And until the end of his Oxford years, he thought might, he might be, become an Anglican priest. After his father's death, the family moved to a smaller but still grand house, Waterhouse in Walthamstow, now the William Morris Gallery, which has been fairly recently renovated and is, 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 is after a fight with the local council, but eventually the local council came around and it, it's really quite wonderful. But I also might want to mention, and to me it's sort of, symbolic of how things, the interconnectedness of, of, of things in England, I believe I have this right, then that, that very improbably when the gallery opened in the 1930s, it was opened, it was opened by the conservative prime minister, Stanley Baldwin. And of course, the reason that Baldwin opened it, the connection, as I'll mention later, is that he was uh, Byrne Jones's nephew. And, and, and so he had a family connection. And then when it was reopened after the Second World War, and Morris had very profound, as I'll say, he had very profound doubts about parliamentary politics. It, it was reopened by then Prime Minister Clement Attlee. But I mean, I love it that it was Baldwin and Attlee who were the official <laughs> openers of the museum at two different points. He had, he had what was becoming the traditional education of his class, and at the age of 13, he went to Marlborough, one of the up-and-coming new boarding schools, founded to serve the ambitions of the middle class to educate their sons appropriately and train them to become rulers of the state and figures of empire and have successful careers. Fortunately for Morris, the school was not yet very well organized, 
there were schoolboy riots, which he participated in, and he was able to spend much time enriching his sense of nature, which would contribute so much to his later designs. Through, through his freedom to wander uh, about in the new, nearby uh, uh, Savonnake Forest, as well as other rural sites. In 1851, his later design history was indicated by his adolescent refusal to go to the Great Exhibition, to enter it, based on what he had heard about it. He was not yet politically radical, but the exhibition would come to stand for the international triumph of Britain. But also more significantly, despite the building itself being such a beautiful triumph of functionalism, the, the Paxton glass design, many of the British objects on display were examples of overly elaborate design committed to ostentatious display rather than practicality and simplicity that would become characteristic of the arts and crafts movement. He entered Exeter College in, in October 1852. His experiences there were crucial for his future. Less in his formal studies, he was doing a past degree, but what is often as important, if not more so, for the college years, his multiple interests would take shape, and he made the friends that he would have for the rest of his life, most notably the artist Edward Byrne Jones, then plain Edward Jones. He also became a poet and helped pay for the journal that published his work. In his lifetime, and this is too easily forgotten, uh, his greatest fame, in fact, was a poet. Most notably, his multi-volume work, The Earthly Paradise. And from time to time, he was given the nickname, uh, because of his political views, I think, of The Earthly Paradox. He, he might well have become a poet laureate, in fact, at the time of Tennyson's death, if it, if it, hadn't, if it, it hadn't been for his uh, far-left politics. Now his poetry, I think, but there might be English scholars here who say I'm wrong, but I think tends to be the least studied, it's still studied, but the least studied of his extraordinary range of accomplishments. And his earlier, rather splendid earlier poems are now of greatest interest. He and Burne Jones became dedicated to fight against what they called shoddy in the world. The question was how best to do it. At first, they thought they might do it by becoming Anglican priests. Ironically, it was while taking a tour which overwhelmed them, overwhelmed them with the beauty of, the, of cathedrals, the cathedrals in northern France, that they came to the conclusion that they would, they would try to change the world through art, not religion. His reading of Thomas Carlyle and also of Pugin, and, and uh, the Pugin book uh, Contrasts is in the exhibition, and even more of John Ruskin while a student was extremely important in shaping his ideas. Carlyle's Past and Present was published in 1855 and heavily influenced Morris, shaping his admiration of medieval guilds and putting him into that tradition of English radicalism, as I've mentioned, looking backwards in order to go forward. Ruskin, whose anniversary of his birth has triggered, I believe, the present exhibition, was even more significant in shaping Morris's thought, thoughts. In 1853, Ruskin had published The Stones of Venice. 
in which the most important chapter was the nature of Gothic. Years later, Morris would reprint the chapter as the fourth book issued by the Kelmscott Press. There is in his preface, there in his preface, he wrote that, that that chapter, particular chapter, in future days, it will be considered as one of the very few necessary and inevitable utterances of this century. And as the book is wonderfully on display in the exhibition, and it's particularly, it's particularly nice, and I love these connections, that the exhibition, that the book, the issue, the copy that's on show here is uh, the one that he gave uh, to, his, uh, to uh, Georgina Byrne-Jones, uh, wife of the painter. He was his closest male friend, and she his closest female friend. In the English way in which every, as I've said, in the English way in which everyone seems connected, uh, she, she was one of the famous, McDonald's uh, sisters, I think their, their, her father was a Methodist preacher, I think, and one of our sisters, as I married, uh, I've forgotten his first name, but, but, but uh, uh, Alfred, I think, Alfred Baldwin, uh, Stanley Baldwin's father, and uh, the other sister married, as you probably know, Rudyard Kipling. And, 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 and hence, uh, and of course, Rudyard Kipling, and there's been renewed interest. There was a big exhibition, which unfortunately I did, couldn't see, uh, both at the v &A and then the Bard Center in New York, of, uh, about, uh, about uh, Lock, uh, Lockwood Kipling, who was extremely important in reviving uh, the arts and crafts of India. Ruskin advanced the idea which became crucial to Morris's thinking. There was virtue in the lack of perfection or roughness in the Gothic craftsmen, as it reflected the humanity of the art and the pleasure that the, mark, the maker took in the work. On the other hand, it is too easily assumed that Morris hated machine work. Ruskin, I think, as, as the docent pointed out vividly yesterday, that I took this fine tour of the exhibition, uh, but Morris thought uh, machines should be used when appropriate to aid in manufacture and to cope with its more tedious aspects. But how was Morris to implement his way of attacking shoddy in the world about him? As an architect? He went to work in the office of the, uh, in Oxford of the prominent and progressive architect, G.E. Street. That did not work out, although it was there that he met Philip Webb, who became the leading arts and crafts architect, architect and a very close friend. Street was important for instilling in Morris the idea that a building was to be a total work of art, and one needed to take into consideration everything that went, in, went into it, outside and in, including its furnishings. It was also at this time that he became part of Dante Gabriel Rossetti's circle of pre-Raphaelites. He took a flat in uh, Red Lion Square in London, and finding no worthy furniture, he designed his own. And there was a conference, I think, unfortunately I couldn't go to it, but I, there was a conference in which the, the, the theme of the conference well, at the at the uh, the University of uh, uh, not the University the Delaware Art Museum, in I guess Wilmington uh, the the State Museum, uh, which has the finest as you probably know pre-Raphaelite collection in 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 the United States, 
and and uh, but they, they had a conference in which the topic was the two was the two chairs, uh, and of course the, the, some of you may know the great bibliophile and collector Mark Samuels Lasner has has a, a great William Morris collection at the University of Delaware, and it has much else uh, much in, else in it. And he ran several years ago a terrific conference on William Morris in America. As far as I know, I don't think the proceeds were ever published. In 1857, led by Rossetti, Morris and others embarked on the unsuccessful, if you ever try to see them, you'll see why, unsuccessful paintings of frescoes in the Oxford Union. More significantly, in terms of Morris's life, Rossetti spotted what he called a stunner in the, Ox in the Oxford music rooms, uh, the beautiful Jane Burden, the daughter of a groom. Major, Morris's one major painting was a full-length portrait of her, although he was not satisfied with the result, commenting that he loved her but could not paint her. They married in 1859. It was not a happy marriage, although they stayed together. Had two daughters, the epileptic, sadly epileptic Jenny and the powerful May, where there's a wonderful letter that she wrote to Shaw in, 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 in the exhibition in which she said, I am a great person, or, or she accepts a compliment. What's not mentioned in the caption, however, is that, that there was a strong possibility. It never mounted to anything. But, but, it didn't, but that they were, Shaw and years before, uh, Shaw and May Morris were somewhat uh, romantically involved. Uh, it would have been an extraordinary marriage. Um, and, and of course, May became very much the custodian. She lived in Comscott Manor until her death. Uh, she gave it to Oxford. Oxford really didn't want it, and, and it now belongs, it's open to the public. It, it belongs to the Society of Antiquaries. Um, and May, May edited uh, the multi-volume collected works and then the two important supplementary volumes. One suspects that Morris loved Jane more than she loved him. And uh, uh, he turned away from painting, uh, unsuccessful painter, he, he turned away from painting to poetry and in 1858, he published his first book of poems, The Defense of Guinevere, in many ways now regarded as his best, although poorly reviewed at the time. The poems are marked by their interest in medieval scenes, the sense of decorativeness. They're facing the grimness of medieval life rather than endlessly romanticizing it. They also surge with erotic energy. But it wouldn't be for some years later that he wrote the multi-volume The Earthly Paradise, a collection of tales for which he was best known to the Victorian public. They were the sort of TV series of the time, and people would read them out loud to one another uh, after dinner. Uh, and as I say, that was probably his greatest claim to fame in his lifetime. In a sense, his marriage was responsible for precipitating what would be the next step in his career, it was a very important event in terms of his relation to the arts and crafts. He had moved to a larger flat in London, but even so it was too small when he was married. So he could afford to have a house built, which he also thought, which never happened, could be a sort of commune with the Byrne Joneses. Red House, now open to the public via the National Trust, in Bexley Heath, 
outside London was designed by Philip Webb in 1860. Some have seen it, perhaps with some exaggeration, as the beginning of modern architecture because of its comparative plainness, almost its, 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 its sense of austerity. It's a beautiful house not illustrated in the exhibition, but the docent yesterday, she had a photograph of it, which, which she showed to the group. It looks, in my view, both medieval and modern. It is a two-story building, L-shaped, with a faint feeling of a monastery, although Morris himself believed in jolly dinners with lots of wine. Morris lived there only until 1865, as for his business, he needed to live in London. It's the only house he built for himself. Eventually, he would rent Kelmscott Manor, a beautiful old house in Kelmscott Village, comparatively near Oxford, and the handsome Georgian, which he renamed Kelmscott House on the Thames in Hammersmith, now owned by the William Morris Society, although its actual headquarters is in the coach house on the grounds. He would come to see buildings and books as exemplary total works of art. Morris and his friends felt that they needed to design themselves that they needed to design themselves what would go into the into the house in terms of furniture and what was on the walls that were frequently pa painted with patterns designed by Morris as well as he and others creating murals and hangings for the house. The aim unlike so many Victorian objects, was not to impress others, but rather to provide comfort and beauty for those who lived there. An ordinary person could not build such a house, but it suggested a direction that domestic architecture might take. Morris and his closest friends now thought that they might be able to transform the look of everything about them. So in 1861, the firm of Morris, Marshall, Faulkner and Company was established. Morris was always the major figure and that was recognized in 1875 when the firm was reorganized as Morris and Company. Though not in its original name, Rossetti and Byrne Jones were very much involved, which is clear from in the exhibition. As Morris wrote about the firm in 1883, all the minor arts were in a state of complete degradation, especially in England. And accordingly, in 1861, with the conceited courage of a young man, I set myself to reforming all that and started a sort of firm for producing decorative objects. He was incredibly, incredibly prolific. In the 1870s, he created more uh, created uh, uh, more than 600 designs, mostly for textiles and wallpapers. The exhibition includes his very first textile design, Daisy, of 1862, and his last, Compton, in the year he died, 1896, as well as three others, as well as many examples of his wallpaper. They were virtually all inspired by the natural world. At first, they were hand-produced by the firm, but many of them were done, as it says in the exhibition, by machine by Jeffrey and Company, and now many of them are still available from Sanderson and Company. It could be said that he was the greatest pattern designer of the 19th century. As he wrote, almost all the designs we use for surface decoration, wallpapers, textiles, and the like, I designed myself. 
I've had to learn the theory and to extend the practice of weaving, dyeing, and textile printing, all of which I must admit has given me and still gives me a great deal of enjoyment. Ironically, as Morris was pretty much without religion, the firm was very involved and profited greatly from the manufacture of stained, stained, stained glass uh, windows, mostly, mostly designed by Rossetti, Ford Maddox Brown, and Byrne Jones, although Morris himself designed 150 himself. They were done mostly for the many churches being built in the 19th century. Uh, at, and, and of course, he also did windows for churches that already existed, but eventually he decided that he would not do windows for existing churches, just for new churches. 600 churches in Britain have windows designed by the Morris firm, as well as churches abroad. And perhaps the best known example in, in America is, I, I think it's the main church is Trinity Church in, in Copley Square. In, in Boston. Its historian, the historian of Morris's stained glass, Charles Souter, regards it as the great, that Morris's glass, and, and well, of course Morris and his associates, uh, as the greatest stained glass since, since the 16th century. Morris also revived the making of tapestries. He would weave himself while composing poetry. There is a continual and, and difficult, in a way, uh, paradox in Morris's career as a businessman. He was not particularly radical, I don't think, when he began his business, but he became increasingly so in subsequent years, ultimately coming to believe that capitalism should be replaced by Marxist socialism, by revolution, if necessary. But to finance his political beliefs, as well as his life, he needed to make money, particularly as his private income was in decline. He paid his hundred or more workers well, and there was some profit sharing, but they were by necessity part of the commercial system that he abhorred. But he reasoned, I think perfectly logically, that if he ran his own business on socialist principles, what that would mean that he wouldn't make the money in which to destroy the system. So it was a short term, so to speak, but of course it's become long term. Uh, 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 and I think logical thinking, but he was attacked or teased. You're, you're a successful businessman who sell to the rich. How, how can you be such a socialist? What he called a profit-grinding society made it impossible to function, as he might possibly have been able to do in the medieval past, and that he hoped others would do in the socialist world of the future, as envisioned in what I regard as his greatest novel, News from Nowhere. In the 1860s, he also returned to poetry uh, with book-length poems such as The Life and Death of Jason in 1867. In 1868, he started to publish the four volumes of The Earthly Paradise. It consists of alternate tales, 24 in total, told by Norse seafarers and descendants of ancient Greeks. He also became very interested in the Icelandic sagas and translated quite a few of them with the help of a distinguished native speaker. He traveled to Iceland in 1871 and 1873, partially to be out of the country in order to avoid the pain, although he believed people should go where their emotions took them, of his wife's affair with Rossetti. 
He vastly enjoyed what he regarded as the more primitive world of Iceland, and even brought back a pony, mouse, to England. At this time, he also took up calligraphy, creating approximately 1,500 pages. The range, quality, and quantity of his talents were breathtaking. In the mid-1870s, his attention turned to politics, and he began his pilgrimage leftwards. He first became an ardent Gladstonian liberal, swept along by Gladstone's dramatic denunciation of the Turkish massacre of Bulgarians in his famous pamphlet, The Bulgarian Horrors and the Question of the East. He referred in a letter in the press in 1876 as the, as the Turks as, quote, thieves and murderers. As a wealthy activist, he became the treasurer of the Eastern Question Association, as well as sometime later, treasurer of the National Liberal League. But as, they, as the 1870s progressed, he became increasingly disillusioned with traditional politics. Once the liberals were back in office in 1880, he was disturbed by their coercion of Ireland and the bombing of Alexandria. This multifaceted man made one of his greatest contributions in 1877 as the major founder of the, probably the first group of its kind, the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Buildings, which had the nickname Anti-Scrape. It is still an active and important organization, and one of the, may have been the very first of these uh, societies, such as Georgian Society, Victorian Society, and so forth. And still, it's still somewhat controversial. He was increasingly horrified by the tearing down of older buildings of merit. But he approached the problem somewhat unusually in that he hated restoration. His enemy was the great Victorian architect, Gilbert Scott, and his rebuilding of ancient buildings so they would in, in effect be reproductions and not genuine articles, untrue in Morris's view, both to the time when they were built and their present age. Morris believed that in order to keep true to the original building, the minimal should be done to keep it in good, good repair. And if that weren't possible, the building should be allowed to have a decent death. <laughs> the society made him more of a public figure and helped lead him to become more and more political, to give more and more public talks. He talked about art and politics. As he remarked in 1883, I have only one subject on which to lecture, the relation of art to labor. The need for revolutionary change became more and more his preoccupation. He wanted a society which consisted of semi-independent units, not centrally controlled. He increasingly believed that the destruction of private ownership was essential. He placed less and less faith in traditional politics. His disdain for it is demonstrated in that in news from nowhere, the disused houses of parliament have become storehouses for manure. There was, a growing, there was the growing political unrest of the 1880s in England. He was more and more involved in political organizations which he helped finance, the various precursors of the Labour Party. Ironically, he was, I think, he was too individualistic to be a good party man. 
He first joined the Social Democratic Federation, whose membership card he designed. I think it's in the exhibition. Under the leadership of H.M. Heinemann, it had a Marxist orientation, which Morris supported. But in his view, it was too committed to parliamentary politics. He read Das Kapital in French in a cheap edition, although he claimed he never quite understood its economics. Yet, like Marx, he became a profound critic of the alienation of la the laborer from work. The volume that he read was bound by, for Morris by the great bookbinder, who figures in the exhibition, the great bookbinder and later printer, T.J. Cobden Sanderson. Uh, an aspect that I'm fond of is that when, uh, in a Cobden Sanderson exhibition, I think it was, of his bindings, and he was the great, perhaps the greatest, under Morris's influence, perhaps the greatest bookbinder of the 19th and early 20th century, uh, the, 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 this copy of Das Kapital is displayed. But what I love, in the caption, it says, this book is not worthy of its binding. But, but b what they mean, it's not a political comment. They're, com they're commenting that it was a cheap edition <laughs> that didn't deserve, such because of its lack of quality as a work of printing, that it didn't deserve this, this uh, magnificent binding. Um, in 1889, he declared himself a communist. He felt that art could not flourish under capitalism. He announced his conversion to he had announced his conversion to socialism earlier in 1883, rather incongruously in a lecture at Oxford chaired by John Ruskin. Although Ruskin was a suitable chair, but the university uh, authorities were rather upset that this very radical talk had been given at, under the aegis of the university. As he said, so long as the system of competition in the production of an exchange of the means of life goes on, the degradation of the arts will go on. He became fed up with the traditional politics of the Federation and moved in a more anarchist direction. And he formed a new group, the Socialist League. He was his leader, its leader until 1890. Its membership card, designed by Walter Crane, depicted Morris as a blacksmith at an anvil. He hoped that there would actually be revolutionary change in Britain, but soon his hopes ended on Bloody Sunday, November 13, 1887, when 120,000 120, socialists, radicals, and Irish were dispersed and beaten by police in Trafalgar Square. Morris wrote a death song for Alfred Linnell, one of the two men killed at the demonstration, to be sold for the benefit of his children. The more parliamentary inclined members of the Socialist League led by Marx's daughter, Eleanor, withdrew from the Socialist League when they were outvoted. Morris founded the now more dominant anarchist wing of the League, Uncongenial, and withdrew to form a small local group that met in his coach house, the Hammersmith Socialist Society. Rather paradoxically, Morris passionately believed in group action Yet he was also a, a deeply, I think, Victorian individualist and a natural leader who couldn't continue in groups, even if he had had a leadership role when he found that those groups were going in directions which he found uncongenial. His continual aim was that there might be an England where classes and private property were abolished, where workers would enjoy their work 
and the fruits of their labor and where exploitation would no longer take place. But he also knew that it was a continual process and permanently achieving it was almost impossible. Amazingly, at the same time, he was also extremely active in his firm, which continued to do well, although he was increasingly influential through younger disciples. Among others, A.H. McMurdo and Herbert Horn founded the Century Guild in 1882. The Art Workers, uh, uh, the Art Workers Guild was established in 1884, and C.R. Ashby formed the Guild of Handicraft in 1888, and all of them are cited in the exhibition. I, but I just must say uh, uh, that uh, it, in the caption for Ashby, it quite accurately says uh, that his mother uh, was a highly cultivated woman of a Hamburg German Jewish family. But what has always sort of amused me and is not mentioned uh, in the caption, his father was H.S. Ashby and his great claim to fame, he's the most significant. He published this three-volume work, which is a, a bibliography of pornography. And, and, and also, according to Stephen Marcus, he may have been the author of the, My Other Life, or whatever, the famous sort of porno, anonymous pornographic or autobiography of, of the 19th century. And what I always love is his son, C.R. Ashby, was a proponent of the, how, the book Beautiful, and H.S. Ashby was the proponent of the book Dirty. Um, um, <clears throat> also in 1888, uh, or 1887, it says in the exhibition, I'm now not sure which is the date, uh, the Arts and Crafts uh, Society came into existence for, to this, uh, Cobden Sanderson, in fact, was the coiner of now become the canonical phrase arts and crafts, suggesting that the so-called lesser arts were on the same level as the higher arts. The society had an annual exhibition that promulgated the style. As this exhibition makes evident, the movement so shaped by Morris became increasingly active in the United States. It was influential on the continent as well. Morris gave these organizations his somewhat grudging blessing as he regarded them as palliatives, not getting to the heart of economics and politics. At the same time, he was so politically active, he was also continually writing. My two favorite books of his were written in this period. A Dream of John Ball, published in 1888, and News from Nowhere, i.e. Utopia, in 1891. The former had a splendid front frontispiece by Byrne Jones, who didn't share Morris's political opinions, although they remained the closest of friends, with the motto under the drawing of, of Adam and Eve, it's drawing of Adam and Eve uh, uh, working in the fields. When Ad Adam delved, and Eve spanned, who was then the gentleman. There he recounted, through John Ball, the rebel priest, the failed peasant uprising led by Watt Taylor in 1381. In it he wrote, Morris wrote, how men fight the fight and lost the battle, and the thing they fought for comes about in spite of their defeat, and when it comes, turns out not to be what they meant, 
and other men have to fight for what they meant under another name. And sort of encapsulates so much sort of socialist history, sadly, perhaps. There are two copies of the book uh, in the exhibition. Uh, uh, two copies of, of, of not the Dream John Ball, but two copies of News from Nowhere in the exhibition. A pirated American edition and the beautiful Kelmscott Press edition of 1892 with C.M. Gear's fine frontispiece depicting Kelmscott Manor the destination of the book of the trip up the Thames in the novel. News begins with the Morris figure returning disillusioned from a political meeting where six were present and six divergent views were argued. The next day, he wakes up in the future, a two-year violent revolution having taken place, ending in 1952 for a victory for socialism. Now in England, law courts and prisons have been abolished and the central government has been replaced by direct participatory democracy, a series of self-governing communes in communication with one another. Small is beautiful in terms of government and of the economy. It is a world in which it would appear that Morris and Co. had designed everything, and its inhabitants had learned his lesson that pleasure and work results in more beautiful objects. There is nothing in people's houses, as, as Morris wrote, that are not either beautiful or useful. He didn't claim that objects had to be beautiful and useful, which is, it's frequently represented as. Ideally, they should be beautiful and useful, but to him, it was sufficient that they would be useful or beautiful. So he wasn't, so I think that's an important distinction. There's little emphasis in News From Nowhere on material progress. There was a turn from useless toil to useful work. As old Hammond, who lived through the revolution, explains to the narrator, guest, the production of what used to be called art, and which has no name among us now, because it, 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 but which has no name among us now, because it has become a necessary part of the labor of every man who produces. Morris also in these years published six mostly so-called prose romances, several of them about splendid Germanic German tribes that had renewed popularity in the 1960s as they were seen as, as similar to Tolkien. And then two further ones were published after his death. Morris claimed somewhat disingenuously uh, that, that uh, and, and I think inaccurately, that these books were apolitical, but they were less political than others. But, they, but they, he said they were just meant as tales, as he said, pure and simple. The last eight years of Morris's life, he died in 1896, were dominated by books, even as he kept up with the firm and his political activities. He was also in declining health. He became an avid book collector, particularly of early printed books and illuminated manuscripts. But most important in 1892, which is wonderfully documented in the exhibition, he founded the Kelmscott Press. Uh, much of what he produced as a publisher and designer was only available to the well-off. He felt that the situation wouldn't fundamentally change until there was a revolution. Nevertheless, through changing taste and setting new standards of beauty and craftsmanship, the design work might have good effects even in a flawed society. As he wrote, to enjoy good houses and good books in self-respect and decent comfort 
seems to me to be the pleasurable end which all societies of human beings ought to struggle. Inspired by a lecture by Emery Walker on type at the first Arts and Crafts exhibition in 1888, he himself had lectured on, at that exhibition on tapestry and carpet weaving, Morris decided to launch the press. He regarded the book as, the total artistic, as a total artistic entity, not only in, its con in the contents, but the design of the page. They were printed in one of the three typefaces that he designed. He worked out the needed relationship between, as he wrote, the paper, the form of the type, the relative spacing of the letters, the words, and the lines, and lastly, the position of the printed matter on the page. As usual, his work was inspirational and was the major impetus for the spate of private presses that were to follow in his wake, such as Doves, Vale, Ashendine, and Essex House. The press ultimately published 53 books, three after Morris's death, many of them reprints of poetry, including his own. Its masterpiece on display here was the Comcart Chaucer, finished in June 1896. Byrne Jones, who did 87 woodcut illustrations for it, called it, and I think it's cited in the exhibition, the term, he, he called it a pocket cathedral. So it, it, it unified both Morris's sense of buildings and books. Morris designed the decorative aspects of the book, such as the initial words and borders. The most, copy of it, most moving copy of it that I've seen is not, perhaps sadly, here, but it, 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 it's up the road at SMU. And, and it's inscribed, <laughs> I, see, I see a sign of distress. It, it's, it, it, I saw it when it, that great book collector, which probably some, a book dealer, whom probably some of you know, uh, still going strong, I think it's in the 90s, uh, Colin Franklin, uh, owned it. And I, I saw it when, when <laughs> at the most beautiful place of books I've ever been. In, is it Didcock or in his, his place near Oxford? And he announced, as book dealers are likely to do, I'm not going to sell it. <laughs> but he sold it to SMU. And the thing that, of course, you know that Morris is dying, so perhaps, the, uh, and, and it's inscribed, it's Byrne Jones's copy, and it's inscribed to Byrne Jones in this visibly shaky handwriting. And there's something, uh, you know, not surprisingly, it, it, it's, it's extremely streeting moving to see. He had been in bad health since catching a cold speaking in December 1895 in the open air at the funeral of Sergei Stepanak, the Russian anarchist. He died on October 3rd, and of course the deathbed drawing is here by Richmond, uh, 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 that, and, and, and he had, had a, a simple funeral and the, the, his funeral cart is, is, there's a photograph of it in the exhibition, was buried in the churchyard at Kelmscott Village under a raised Viking-like tombstone designed by Philip Webb. Morris's ideas and activities were so wide that it would, it would be possible to see his, his life as extremely diffused. But I think there is a strong, consistent line in his thought. His life was much more unified than might at first appear. After his death, interest in him tended both to decline somewhat, which happens, of course, when he was no longer a vivid present, 
and presence and to be divided among his various activities, with, with perhaps after his death in the, some years, or maybe up until the Second World War, perhaps the most attention being paid to him as a Victorian poet. There were those who were then interested in him as a poet and designer were inclined to be rather put off by his politics. But all that changed after the Second World War, where gradually a conception, correctly I believe, of the integrated Morris became much more dominant. This was marked, among other indications, by the formation of the William Morris Society in 1955 and the publication of E.P. E. Thompson's great William Morris, Romantic to Revolutionary, that same year. Interest in his political ideas greatly increased as a result of many on the left becoming disillusioned with the failures of the Soviet Union and the tragedies of the Soviet Union and of the failures of state socialism. I mean, in a way, the, the spirit of the 60s, uh, uh, the counterculture of the 60s, uh, supported uh, the growth of Morris's reputation. As I say, he became something of a hero of the counterculture, both stylistic, stylistically and politically, in the 1960s and beyond. His extraordinary work in so many areas was now seen as much more integrated than one might have thought. And the splendid exhibition, which is arguing the theme of the essays and so forth, is that his design had a political purpose. It, it is, it's somewhat, it's totally legitimate, and I think it's been in the thought of the time, but it's, it's been more explicitly articulated uh, by this exhibition than it, than it has in this past. And this splendid exhibition next door, around the corner, downstairs, makes clear how important and influential his design work was, improving, was in improving our world and possibly, possibly, perhaps at some point in the future, making a better world. As he wrote, as the last line of News from Nowhere, if others can see it as I have seen it, then it may be called a vision rather than a dream. Thank you. <laughs>